Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McFrossin. And today's episode is Day Sleeper, where we discuss perioperative management of obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, with special guest Dr. Hamish Pollock. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Hamish Pollock is a staff specialist anaesthetist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and the director of the Redcliffe Hospital Intensive Care Unit. His interests are perioperative medicine, renal replacement therapy, and neuroanesthesia. Outside of work, Hamish is a member of the world championship winning Australian national full ball rifle team and hopes to continue to represent Australia in this sport at the Worlds in 2023 in South Africa. Hamish, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So look, we should preface this discussion by saying that different institutions may have different guidelines and approaches to the management of patients with OSA. So always check with your own consultants or your colleagues and intensive care unit before making any management decisions out there in the real world. So Hamish, why is obstructive sleep apnea an important topic for the exam and indeed for life as a practicing anaesthetist? Well, poor outcomes, coronial cases, death, major complications postoperatively, and OSA is frequent and it's becoming more common. The prevalence ranging from about 24 to 41% depending on the surgical subtype of patient. Whilst all patients with OSA are not obese, there's a significant correlation with obesity and we live in an era of an obesity pandemic. Mm -hmm. Therapy can be difficult to access due to cost or not tolerated by the patient. And we don't have endless non-vent ICU or HDU beds for these patients to go into postoperatively. And it's a little more complicated than that in the postoperative course anyway. Mm. So what are we doing? Mm, that's so true. Yeah, well, you've convinced me because this is a problem I run into frequently at work. Mm. So let's go back to the basics. How exactly do we define obstructive sleep apnea? So obstructive sleep apnea, OSA, involves a cyclical collapse of the pharyngeal airway and resultant airflow limitation during sleep, either partial hypopneas or complete apneas. And Hamish, what are the risk factors for sleep apnea? Well, male gender, postmenopausal, family history of OSA, advancing age, and the primary modifiable factor is BMI, with severe obstructive sleep apnea occurring in 10 to 20% of patients with BMI greater than 35. Mm. But just under 25% of patients with OSA aren't obese. So mm. it's a common problem, mm. and it's very difficult yeah. to discern which are going to have OSA. Yeah, that's really interesting. And actually, that, that statistic, 10 to 20% of patients with a BMI over 35 have severe obstructive sleep apnea is actually kind of horrifying. That's really scary. But also is the 25% um, who have a normal BMI, because yeah. I have two people in my life very close to me that 
uh, both have sleep apnea, one with a CPAP machine and one with a mandibular advancement splint. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you, know, you would never guess just from, you know, looking at them that they would have OSA and there's no, you know, thick necks or anything unusual like that. So, mm. Mm. Now, Hamish, how is OSA typically diagnosed? Well, unfortunately, a huge proportion of our patients who are likely to have OSA are not diagnosed and they present to our care expecting a general anaesthetic and we have to discern whether they're going to be a high or low risk based mm. on a very quick questionnaire, usually using stop bang screening. The other one is the Epworth sleepiness score um, or sleep studies such as polysomnography and increasingly nocturnal SATS probe monitoring um, in the home setting using even an iPhone app is being used to diagnose this in some areas of the world. Wow. Stop bang is the usual screening tool that most of us are familiar with for the perioperative assessment. And that includes snoring, tiredness, fatigue and daytime somnolence. Um, the O stands for observed apneas, which are witnessed usually by um, someone's partner. Pressure is the P, which is hypertension. And then a BMI greater than 35, age over 50. And neck circumference being 43 centimetres for a male and 41 for a female and a male gender. In fact, being male and obese seems to be the worst of all worlds mm. and your perioptic arms are disproportionately affected because it's also part of the obesity sur surgery mortality risk stratification score. Mm. Um, being obese and male is a, is a bad combination. Mm. So is that being obese and male and having sleep apnea or just being obese and male? Being obese and male. Mm. Okay, interesting. And then OSA on top of it, it gets... Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so we've sort of we also we've just defined what sleep apnea is and what the risk factors are and some of the screening methods for it. But it's not just having sleep apnea and the effect that that can have on the perioperative journey. Is it like there are other complications, health complications that can occur secondary to OSA? Yes, and I suppose the hardest thing when you're talking about this is to 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 discern the difference between just OSA and obesity, and that there is a there is a crossover. So for OSA, we talk about twice the rate of post-operative desaturations. What the clinical significance of that is not entirely clear, mm. but in we have coronal cases, there is clearly a significance. There's an increased sensitivity to opiate-induced desaturations. There's an association with right heart strain and eventually right heart failure, and most anaesthetists fear the right heart mm. failing on them, mm -hmm. which we all know can lead to big implications in mm. anaesthetics. So I think OSA itself is linked to other problems such as difficult airway management, you know, holding someone with a thick neck in a, and, and maintaining an airway whilst you're setting up to instrument the airway is particularly difficult. Mm. But intubation itself can be difficult. They have systemic hypertension. They've got associated insulin resistance, but that's probably a little more to do with the obesity side of things. Mm. And they have AF because they've got right ventricular strain and their uh, right atria is dilating up. Mm. OSA leads to a triad of, or is associated with a triad of obesity with a BMI greater than 35, disordered sleep breathing, and daytime hypercapnia. And this is the obesity hyperventilation syndrome. And this group is particularly susceptible to respiratory um, depression, secondary to anesthesia and opiates. Mm. Those patients with a high bicarb on their uh, either blood gas or even on their biochemistry should should that should be alerting you to this being a major problem. Mm, you just answered my question, actually. I was just about to ask about 
um, the utility of, you know, a bicarb in, in uh, an index of suspicion of obesity, hyperventilation. So mm, That's really interesting. So, Hamish, for these patients, what are our options for treating them? What do we have as therapeutic options? Well, most of us think OSA and immediately talk about CPAP mm. devices. And, in fact, that is the mainstay of, of treatment. Unfortunately, even when you have a CPAP machine, your compliance is probably less than 50%, mm. um, with most patients not being 100% compliant every night anyway. Mm. And a lot of patients, their CPAP machine simply just gathers dust, unfortunately. There are some other treatment options, particularly for those people who don't have obesity. Mandibular advancement splints, which, Kate, you mentioned before. Mm. Uh, uvuloplasty can be benefited in, in a limited population. Mm. So look, say we have a pretty typical patient that I think a lot of our listeners would be able to relate to, a 52-year-old male, BMI 41, with a stop-bang score of 6 out of 8, presenting to our pre-admission clinic one week prior to having a total hip replacement, which they've been waiting for for some time and are very keen to have uh, and, and haven't had any investigations for sleep apnea. How would we go about assessing this patient and then planning for their perioperative journey? Well, this is one of those great anaesthetic um, exam questions because... Um, you immediately calculate out that the stop bank score should be three. And mm. you've told me it's six, eight. So there's other stuff going on straight away. This mm. person's not just got OSA. They've got some of the complications of it as mm. well. So I think what you need to do is, as with every management question, you take a history, examine the patient, particularly if they have a CPAP machine or are they using it or even have they been for sleep studies themselves? Because a lot of people have been for sleep studies way back when and usually they've gained weight since their sleep study because they haven't got a CPAP machine mm. um, and CPAP machines are associated with weight loss mm. so it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you don't get your CPAP machine and you get bigger mm. yeah why is that is that because people have more energy during the day and feel that they can exercise more or eat better is there any reason so there's a postulation that those patients are less somnolent during the day, therefore consume more calories because they move around more during the day. Mm. I don't really think there's a, a good answer. Mm. Um, but if you can lose weight because you've got a CPAP machine, your OSA gets better anyway because mm. if you lose 10 calories, it usually essentially goes away mm. in those patients obesity caused obstructive sleep apnea. Mm, that's interesting. So say that this patient um, hasn't, had a sleep study, but we've got a high index of suspicion that they have sleep apnea. Anything else that we should be doing with regards to their assessment and planning? I think a full blood count, looking for a high hemoglobin, although that would really be quite severe um, mm. if they did manage hemoglobin due to hypoxia. Uh, you're looking for a high bicarb on their, on their electrolytes. You could consider doing an echo first. Mm. A simple ECG might show you right ventricular strain. Again, in patients that are obese, the ECG isn't particularly useful because mm. of the degradation of the electrical impulses across the, the precordium. Mm. So you won't necessarily get characteristic heights of the QRS complex that would suggest that you've got right ventricular strain. The most important thing really is to, with your institute, decide where the postoperative destination of this patient is going to be. Um, and most institutes have a uh, either a model of care or a agreed process for these patients who are being cared for per perioperatively and where they should be going. So do they go to HGU? Do they go to a ward with SATS monitoring? Do they have to go off to be assessed for obstructive sleep apnea? Mm. Mm. Well, you mean that, you know, as an intensive care specialist, Hamish, you're not 
prepared to you know uh, admit every single patient with suspected <laughs> OSA to your unit in the post-operative phase. Come on, in these days that would be every second patient, wouldn't it? That's the issue. Mm. Well, I think, I think that's the problem. It would be a large number of patients and healthcare can't afford to spend that amount of money. Mm. Um, it, we just can't. And the question is whether it's necessary or not. Mm. And I think if you're on CPAP and you're compliant or even relatively compliant and you and you go well perioptively, there really isn't an indication mm. that you should go to an area of higher care, but you probably ought to have a SATS probe on for the first few nights, ideally, postoperatively. Mm. Mm. Fair enough. So, Hamish, are there any times that we should consider cancelling these patients with uh, suspected sleep apnea and instituting therapy before they actually come back for their surgery? Currently, there isn't any evidence to do so. But depending on your institution, there may be benefit to change the destination of post-operative care that could be accessed by delaying the procedure Mm -hmm. and having sleep studies performed, along with managing any comorbidities and the OSA itself. Bearing in mind that a vast majority of patients that go through sleep studies and have a recommendation for CPAP either don't tolerate it or can't afford to purchase it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It not be actually worth delaying this case. Mm-hmm. Actually, now that you say that, there is, there's a large proportion of patients that have had sleep studies that we see coming through that often say that, I couldn't afford, you know, I want to have it, but I can't afford it because they're apparently quite expensive. Mm. So They are. They're very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you do, yeah, I don't know, it's just a bigger question, isn't it? Like the health mm. economics around whether we actually, you know, could provide better access and what the flow-on effects mm. would be. But anyway, we can mm. discuss that another day. <laughs> so um, moving on to our anaesthetics. So we've seen our patient, we've had a think about them, we've tried to, you know, uh, optimise them as much as we can. But, you know, we've got patients presenting for surgery and we have to get on with it. So how can we modify our anaesthetic technique to accommodate patients who have sleep apnea? Well, are there other options other than a general anaesthetic? And the answer to that is yes, regional, neuroaxonal. If you've got a patient who completely refuses to entertain those um, methods of providing anaesthesia, then really you're obliged to do a general anaesthetic if you can't counsel them out of that decision. Mm. And you need to avoid benzodiazepines, avoid long-acting opiates, try and use multimodal analgesia to prevent the need to give them things that are going to suppress their respiratory system. Mm. The Association of Anesthesia for Great Britain and Ireland and the Society for Obesity and Bariatric Anesthesia have brought out a conjoint pamphlet which suggests that those those people with obesity surgery mortality risk scoring of greater than four to five should be anaesthetized by anaesthetists with experience in this type of patient. Mm. I don't know about you guys, but I think by the time you finish your training, you're probably experienced at these types Yeah, a very useful statement, but it probably was a statement that was made you know, five years ago when the obesity pandemic wasn't so bad. Mm, fair enough. The other thing to bear in mind is regional neuroaxonal techniques might be difficult because we're dealing with people who are, tend to be obese. Mm. So mm. that leaves general anaesthetics, and general anaesthetic, the um, national audit um, number four in the UK suggested practitioners should be cognizant of airway problems for obesity. This was their airway audit that they did nationally. They suggest ramping. And the thing which I think is the most confronting thing is they suggest that rescue airway techniques are going to be difficult, if not fail. And you have a reduced apnea time because of functional residual capacity changes. Mm. The adverse effects appear to be more common in inexperienced anaesthetists 
But you also have to bear in mind the audit structure was anyone who got intubated and mm. some of those intubations would have been intensive care style intubations, which are never ranked, never in a mm. controlled environment and usually you know, through the bed rails of the, the back of the bed. Yeah, it's, um, it is interesting. I think, you know, I still try to take a time, particularly with a high BMI patient, I just think it's time well spent. I think mm. we can maybe get into a situation where we've got a bit of experience, views up our sleeve. We think mm. we can, oh, yeah, we'll just, you know, it's an LMA case. We'll just bring him in, stick an LMA down. It always works. But I never really regret taking the time to put those four or five pillows in and position patients well. I don't know about you too, but. Yeah. And look, yeah. I think as consultants as well, if we're getting a bit of pushback from the surgeons wanting us to speed up, it's a lot easier as a consultant to turn around and tell them to rack off frankly as a trainee that's a lot harder so you know it does that's get true. easier it does get easier yeah the non-technical factors certainly interfere don't they mm. and what about in PACU is there anything specific we can do in there Hamish yeah you, you can really win friends in the PACU nursing staff by insisting they have their CPAP started straight away I've discovered that um, that, that that always goes down really well not um, <laughs> I think I think I think there is a case when you, you should be doing that and that's mm. when simple oxygen isn't working well and um, there's a tendency to reach for things they're familiar with such as high flow but the patient has a CPAP machine they've been titrated so that it overcomes the collapse of their airway you should really be using that yeah mm. one of the that's changed recently in CPAP machines is they've become much more complicated in that they're kind of information technology linking the particular circuit to the particular machine and they've got the HiPat near scores and things like that are, are Bluetooth all to the to the iPhone or the smartphone. But what they've done is they've made it so complicated that supplementing oxygen is becoming difficult. Mm -hmm. So if you can't supplement it into the circuit, simple nasal prongs and hoping you get a decent enough fit around the nasal CPAP mask is probably the best option. Mm, that's okay. good advice. Now, we know that there's often anxiety about sort of managing a patient with obstructive sleep apnea and particularly their post-op destination. Frequently, these patients will be booked for an HDU-style setting for the first night after their procedure. But is there any evidence behind this practice? I think there's comfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, I'm not sure there's much evidence because one of the biggest take-home messages about this conversation is that your apneic hypoxic index um, increases significantly from what the baseline was up to about the third night post-operatively mm. in OSA, and probably due to chemical disruption of the REM sleep patterns. Mm. We usually discontinue monitoring before day three, and in fact, there is a case in Queensland that will probably be going to the coroner where a patient had a cardiac arrest of 72 hours post-operatively and died, mm. and they were young and they were obese, oh, and they probably the sleep patterns. So... I think we, we've got to be careful that bouncing someone through a high care area may not be the total answer. And simple sat probes monitoring on the ward with an observable bay or bed for a few days post operatively is probably a better defence against bad outcome than mm. an HDU or transit, which is usually less than 16 hours. And do you think um, responsible prescribing of opiates in particular falls into that category of, like, even even as us as anesthetists, we're the ones in theatre often on the PRN side of the chart going, oh, oxycodone or tramadol or this or that. And in some places, I personally don't use it much, but you still sometimes see some sidecut morphine charted. So 
Should we be also at that point even taking responsibility for what we're prescribing, listening to the Acute Pain Society's recommendations on maybe avoiding some of the slow-release opioids for Mm. acute pain? Do you think that has a role? Yeah, that's an interesting problem, isn't it? Because if you don't get on top of their pain, particularly if they've had an intra-abdominal operation, you're going to cause diaphragmatic splinting and you're going to worsen Mm. their desaturation rates mm. and, and so it, it's one of those double-edged swords you want enough pain relief to to give them adequate pain relief you just don't want it to be too sedating mm. and I, I suppose the real point is that we should be using everything in our armamentarium to stop giving sedating drugs to these patients mm. and I certainly uh, have increased my use of ketamine intraoperatively to try and reduce the post-operative use of opiates mm. and that junked analgesia is, is, is probably the way forward. Mm, that's and, a good point. You know, if you've got a surgeon that, that's going to do a laparoscopy where another surgeon would do a laparoscopy, perhaps we should be talking to our surgical colleagues about their case selection. Mm. That's a very conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that you mentioned ketamine because uh, mm. I'm a big ketamine fan and I'm using it all the time now intraoperatively but I do wonder if we should be using it even more prolifically postoperatively for certain procedures it's I mean in our institution we're pretty lucky it's easy to prescribe most of the wards surgical wards are happy to run it and even if it's you know four milligrams Mm. an hour just to see if we can take the edge off and not let them hit that opiate ceiling so Mm. an interesting point Uh, I'm an intensivist I see postoperative delirium in lots of my Mm. patients Mm. and they're definitely a link to ketamine Mm. but that may be unique to the intensive care setting. Um, I, I doubt it. I'm not a great fan, but I'm certainly, but I'm certainly more of a fan of low-dose infusions as opposed to high-dose infusions. Mm. Um, and, and again, anything to just stop sedating these patients would be good. Mm. It's interesting. Sorry to sort of deviate from the conversation. When I was working overseas, something they did a lot for abdominal surgery, which I don't see us doing here, is a combination of lignocaine infusions and magnesium infusions, and they had fantastic outcomes from them, particularly in reducing the amount of opioids that were taken postoperatively. Now, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what the evidence for that is, but certainly being over there and being expected to do this and actually seeing these patients in recovery, I was actually really surprised by how well they do and how little opioid opiate that you need to rely on to the point where I I did a laparotomy for a normal-sized lady once and she got a total of 150 mics of fentanyl while we were giving a lignocaine infusion mm. a magnesium. It's incredible. I was quite, I mean, we've quite got, impressed, we've quite impressed. we a few proponents of the uh, opioid-free anesthesia mm. in the department. Mm. I don't know. I've tried using a bit of lignocaine. I need to read the latest um, acute pain guide yes. from ANSCA to really read up on the latest. My personal experience with lignocaine is a bit... It takes them a very long time to wake up. It does, <laughs> and that's something you do need to factor in. And particularly magnesium potentiates your neuromuscular blocking drugs as well. That's something else you have to factor in. So, What do you reckon, Hamish? No, I, I'm all for that. I think there's lots of problems with um, lignocaine infusions when our surgeons are using um, yeah. local anesthetic as well as part of their pain relief. And, and, and you've got to sort of just be aware of what your, the rest of the theatre team are doing at that time. Again, I, I, in my practice, I particularly for the oncogyne cases, I tend to run lignocaine infusions mm. on those patients as well as ketamine, and they might even get some clonidine. But 
in obstructive sleep apnea, I tend to avoid the clonidine because yeah. I think mm. that with the ketamine and an opiate and everything else is just it's just too much sedation. Yeah, mm. that's fair enough. So are there any guidelines out there to help us make decisions about patients with OSA? Well, there are not really any consensus guidelines in Australia. There's some in the US and UK guidelines that do exist. They're kind of mixed in with obesity surgery, though, sometimes, so it's quite hard to sort of tease out specific OSA ones. Um, most of the institutions have some form of a model of care or procedural or or guidelines to how these patients should be managed within Australia. And in fact, one of the things I think we probably ought to be saying is if your institute doesn't have one, it's probably something we need, that's a hole that needs to be filled very mm. quickly. Mm. So Hamish, what are some of the take-home messages for today? Well, I think you have to have high index suspicion for obstructive sleep apnea. It's common. Modify anaesthetic technique is able. Post-op destination and monitoring is more institutional specific. And most institutions have a pathway of management that these patients should be moved along. Mm. Um, it's an increasingly common problem. And with the particularly the obesity pandemic that we're in the middle of, mm. going to continue to be with us for a while. Mm. Good advice. It is. Well, Hamish, it's been a really practical and useful discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. We do have one more thing, though. Uh, <laughs> every time we have a guest on Deep Breaths, we have a little segment that we call What Have You Learnt This Week in Anesthesia? So, Hamish, what have you learnt this week? Vigilance. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. Uh, it's, always, it's always humbling, isn't it? Anesthetics is one of those things that just, if you're, you, you, your ego is never going to survive very long mm. um, and uh, yeah, I'm afraid that I, I'm managing a complication at the moment that uh, no one really wants to manage mm. um, I don't think it's as bad as it could have been because I was in the room paying attention mm. and if I had been faster there would be less of a problem But mm. um, so vigilance is my take home word for this week and like my it self-flagellation word for this month oh hamish don't beat yourself up too much <laughs> i'm gonna throw back human factors and we are all humans back at you to see you know hopefully that can be somehow <laughs> um, and wine you know yes. if all else fails yes absolutely <laughs> <laughs> all right well look, thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate your time and expertise and insights thank you very much for having me it's been great fun you're very welcome well, that's all we have time for on today's episode. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can contact us directly on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love all your suggestions for topics and guest interviewees. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.